this morning. Then we pick up where we left off last week, considering the subject of progressive sanctification. And we're taking for the springboard for our thoughts, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. That wonderful theme of being changed from glory to glory. And we looked a little at that verse in its context and, uh, and what it meant. How we are actually beholding there the image of Christ. That's the, the, the image that we are being transformed into. Because that's where the glory is. It's in God, God alone. But as we get nearer to that image, God beholds in us more and more of his son. Wherever he sees his son, he sees glory. But we were looking particularly, and we're looking again this morning to begin with at least, some of the hindrances, some of the things that get in the way of that process. And we're looking at false guilt as we finished last week, that that hinders our sanctification. You might think it's a, a good thing to feel guilty. Well, to feel guilty about things we should feel guilty of, sure enough, there is the conviction of sin. But to feel guilty about that for which we're not responsible is a hindrance and can actually be a distraction and a loss of energy, which could be used more significantly, more meaningfully in true sanctification. Well, we're picking up this morning with a a new subheading, fear. Hindrances to sanctification, fear. Anything that impairs the moral judgment and skews us away from clear thinking is an enemy to sanctification. Fear, like false guilt, has the power to do this. There are all kinds of fears. There is the fear of man. This is a very large, a very common fear. There is the fear of consequences, which itself is often the fear of man in disguise. There is the fear of something being out of control. That's actually a denial of the sovereignty of God and is an act of unbelief. There is fear of the future, which again is a denial of the sovereignty of God in ruling over all time and space. There is the fear of death, which is a denial of Christ's victory over the grave through his resurrection. Fear is the enemy of progressive sanctification. Sanctification can proceed best when we are alert and accessing the whole counsel of God. Fear paralyzes our judgment and paralyzes clear biblical thinking. Sanctification is not witnessed solely in the things that we avoid, but in the things that we actually do. Fear inhibits clear moral action. Now remember the famous moment in Antioch when Paul has to withstand Peter to his face. It's a moment when the clear truth of justification by faith is established, but then Peter begins to deny it. Why does it arise? Well, fear has taken root in Peter's heart, and it makes him go against the truth of the gospel. This leaves him open to the charge of hypocrisy. Here is the record of the incident. It's Galatians chapter 2, I'm reading from, and verses 11 to 14. We read this. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch 
I, that is Paul, withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with Gentiles. When they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, he goes on to talk about justification by faith and what the implications are for fellowship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Fear made Peter deny the truth, much as he had denied Christ in the high priest court when the Lord Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin. Fear made him stop thinking clearly and realising that by downgrading the Gentiles, he was actually downgrading the gospel and the basis upon which we're saved from our sin. His action was communicating that justification had not quite made the Gentiles right enough with God to be regarded as on an equal footing with ethnic Jews who had come to Christ. Peter was in the grip of the fear of man. We read it there. He feared those who were of the circumcision, verse 12 of Galatians 2. What would they say about Peter, these people, when they got back to Jerusalem? What would they say about his easy ways with the Gentiles? How would that play out among those who were still zealous for the ceremonial aspects of Moses' law? So Peter gave way to fear, despite what it wrongly communicated about the insufficiency of the Gentiles standing before God. So Peter was not straightforward. He did not behave righteously or uprightly, and behind it all was fear. This is where we must say some strong things to ourselves. Sanctification needs clear, unhampered, biblical thinking. Fear gets in the way of all this. Peter wronged the Gentiles in Antioch. Fear leads us to wrong people. It stops us speaking when we should. Fear makes us take up a reproach against a friend in Psalm 15 verse 3. Fear prevents us following the proper course of action to honour God. It makes us ready to allow injustices to be caused against others. Fear is bondage and is the opposite to what the Spirit of the Lord brings, namely liberty, where we are free to move forward in progressive sanctification. Fear twists our thinking so that we're taken up with unproductive things. So often, fear is tied up with the fear of man. What will people say? If we say something or do something, how will it all play out? What will the consequences be? Paul did not hesitate in the situation in Antioch. He could have wondered if this action would make his enemies in Jerusalem or make an enemy of Peter or divide the church in Antioch and perhaps throughout all the churches. Would it make Paul look proud and overbearing? Well, yes. There might well be consequences like this if he did speak. But there was clarity of thought with Paul, and therefore freedom of action. He did not get carried away with fear and commit hypocrisy as others did. Fear, for him, was not a hindrance to sanctified action. 
Well, it's so easy to admire Paul's action, but it's so difficult to follow it. To our shame, many of us would end up where Peter was. We look for the easy path. We're aiming to please people. Even if we end up displeasing others, we do not think are so important to us. We're looking to avoid conflict, even if it means an injustice is committed against others. So some counsel to us all, to myself. We should repent of fear, assuming that we're able to recognize it and confront it in ourselves. Because fear is part and parcel of the sinful nature and can disguise itself as wisdom or prudence. It can tell us we should not act because we're not perfect. We might make matters even worse. Well, here is one of the biggest obstacles actually to us serving God and each other. Here, in fear, is a clear obstacle to moral action. And sanctification is nothing more, nothing less, than what we reveal ourselves to be in moments of crisis and temptation. And too often, we fail. Now my next heading, the obstacle of internalised injustice. The obstacle of internalised injustice. What's that? We'll come to that. Because this, actually, when we look at it, is not unrelated to everything else. This, an internalising of injustice in our soul, can play havoc in the system and again produce paralysis. Past injustices, hurts and harms. Maybe we pick them up at work, at school, in the church, in the family. These things can sit heavily on us. And they can, in truth, we may not always acknowledge it, generate a lot of unspent anger. And unspent anger can be a very unproductive agent in the heart. Unacknowledged and unrecognized, it can work for years, making us restless, unstable, volatile, lacking peace and personal fulfillment. It can wreck our ability to know ourselves, to be able to fully grasp who we are and what we are about. So in effect, we become strangers to ourselves, driven by energies we barely understand or can analyse. The sun going down on our anger is not a healthy thing to do. Ephesians 4 verse 26, scripture tells us this. It brings internal difficulties with it. And one thing that it can do is to actually degenerate into a great carelessness about injustices. If we've swallowed injustices against ourselves or others and hurts and harms and left them unaddressed, we can end up becoming ourselves careless, lacking interest in injustice. We conclude wrongs do not get righted. The evil prosper. There is no justice in the world. The godless can seem to triumph, all virtue confounding. And this can make us less zealous for good works, less likely to intervene, to right wrongs in the world. It can sap our moral energy and power and can become an enemy of progressive sanctification. If that is where we are, we should repent because it's unbelief. We have denied that God is a God of justice, that he cares about widows and orphans, James 1 verse 27. 
We should not grow weary in doing good, but constantly seek the peace of Jerusalem. We might need to make a start by admitting the anger of internalizing, taking in injustices and swallowing them there. And that might require us admitting the hurt caused to us in the past by others. There are hosts of people out there, I'm sure, who owe us an apology that we've never received. Some of them are dead, so we'll never receive it. Some of us have lost reputations at the hands of others, lost money through opportunities that were denied us, had some legitimate happiness taken from us through the cruelty and vindictiveness of others. It can add up to a narrative in the soul overriding the truth of the Bible and overwriting it. We might need to confess the harm received, maybe the false responses and conclusions we made, maybe our failure to ask the Lord for more help. It can feed into false guilt. We take the injustices and weaponize them against ourselves, feeling that we're responsible, maybe for the abuse suffered, the bullying received, the insults endured. Let me be candid. It's high time all of that stopped. When our belief in what is right and what is wrong is blunted, we can become more careless in our walk before the Lord, more willing to grant ourselves spiritual and moral timeouts. Consequently, our moral character can be eroded. We lose ground in the struggle to change from glory to glory. We actually need a very strong belief in heaven. I've known people who were wronged, who have never recovered. The internal discord caused by injustice, unresolved conflicts, unkind words and actions against them can leave a bitter legacy. God deserves better than this from us. We are to seek him for grace. Confessing these matters, however old we are, and then seeking to grow out of them, from glory to glory. Because we are to believe this, he will right all wrongs one day. That's why we should pray for enemies, bless those who curse us. For theirs, if they don't repent, is not a bright and happy ending. Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 to 8. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God And he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. To deny the place of justice, including wrongs against ourselves, is to deny the truth of scripture that we've just read. Internalized injustices need to be cleared away before the clear testimony of the Bible. There will be justice. We must be patient. That's admittedly difficult for restless souls like us, but it's necessary and in the end sanctifying, teaching us self-control and keeping alive in us a belief in justice. That's to be Christ-like. That is why the best exponent of all these things remains our Lord Jesus Christ, the image that we're being changed into. That's what we're coming to now. Whose image is this? Question mark. 
We want clarity to behold in the mirror of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the glory of the Lord that we can be transformed into that same image. We don't want veils getting in the way. We want to see the glorious one reflected back to us in the mirror. Mirror of truth, mirror of the gospel, the mirror of the Bible. Our soul's gaze has to be better focused and trained to behold him better. And as we've just been seeing, it means the removal. We could have mentioned many others, distracting and false thoughts that compromise the grand aim of progressive sanctification. For the end point of sanctification is that we shall be Christ-like. Whether or not there is progress is not essentially a matter of rule observance, but it depends upon whether we are more Christ-like or not. That's what it means, above all else, to be holy. See this confirmed at various points in Scripture. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, we're informed, just after we've been told about the renewing of the spirit of mind, the following, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What is the new man that is to be put on? Where might we find true righteousness and holiness? The answer is obvious. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is what God is creating in feeble and fallen mortals like us. He is creating the life and character of his own dear son. Another passage paralleling that one, Colossians 3 verses 9 to 10. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Off with the old man, Adam and his ways. On with the new man and his deeds. God is renewing our thinking and reasoning, creating a new image in us. And whose image is it? We are new creatures with renewed minds, possessing renewed knowledge, all of which is moving towards the image whose glory is reflected back in the mirror, held up to the gazing soul. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Here, the creative work of God is expressed as follows. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's creative. The light cannot arise naturally within our darkness. It has to come from outside of ourselves. God has to command it. He commands it at conversion when the veil in a very thorough way is lifted. And he goes on commanding it to shine so that the veil need not return other than by our own folly and neglect. The knowledge communicated is the glory of God. We're to see how good he is, how wise he is, how pure he is. And where do we see this? We see it in the face of Jesus Christ. His face, putting that in sort of apostrophes there, is the image being back to us in the mirror. 
It's not a literal face, as though we're joining with those who study the Turin Shroud and think they are seeing Christ. No, think of it like this. The face is the most expressive part of a person. If you want to get some idea what a person is like, what kind of character they are, we do not look at their elbow or their knee. We look at their face. Is it a kind face or a stern face? Is it a welcoming face or a forbidding face? Does it inspire us with hope or fill us with dread? It is his glory, the beauty and excellence of his character that we are to behold in his face and that the spirit is progressively freeing us up, become nearer to resembling. We can never get enough of beholding him. It's never done. We've never exhausted all that Sundays can bring us, that our observance at the communion table can impart to us. We're never finished with hearing preaching about him. There is more to behold. There is more to learn, more to see from his welcoming, kind, loving, forgiving face. He is the key to the transformation. He is the image we behold And he is the image that the Holy Spirit is freeing us to conform to. We've seen some of the obstacles that our yet-to-be-fully-renewed minds put in the way of the process. Precious and scarce spiritual energy and resource is still tied up with fruitless pursuits and distracting ways. The greatest key to our progress is the same person as we are being moved towards. Our beholding of him needs to become more and more accurate. The face, the portrait we behold, the clearer it is, the more we will progress. Nobody is better able to communicate his reality than this person himself. Those excellent means of grace are still held out to us as the continuing way to find the help we need. In a way, it's a fight that we have to fight to get the picture we need. The enemies of progressive sanctification that we identified earlier are also the enemies of getting a clearer picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. They interfere with and distort his lovely face. Instead, there are convictions we need to hold that are helps to dissolving the grip of some of those enemies and which are positive assists in us getting a surer grasp of the true Christ. Some of them are so simple Yet they're so profound, so within reach, and yet so contested in our soul. Another heading. Taking time to look. Taking time to look. Nothing worthwhile in the Christian life comes quickly and easily. We have to fight to get what we need. It's the province of false teaching to offer quick-fix solutions to problems. Believing false solutions, as we saw last week, then becomes part of the problem in our sanctification. Maybe it was one of the undoubted pluses of the pandemic and the lockdowns associated with it, that, if we had wished to use it, we had time and opportunity to be sanctified. Did we use the time that way? I'm not always sure we did. But the moment was there to take time to be holy. How did you take time and how did I? 
And how does it relate to Jesus Christ being the key? Most importantly, there is the matter of prayer. Prayer takes time. It requires us to make time. If we refuse to make time or make so little time that it's barely worth calling prayer, it's saying something rather negative about how much we value our relationship with the Lord. It should say the right thing about us, that we often finish our prayers in Jesus' name. This says we are conscious of our reliance upon him to have a voice that can be heard in heaven in the first place. If we believed we do pray in Jesus' name, who has given us access to God in himself, we'd be busier praying than we are. Or if we thought the access was of great importance and itself something remarkable, we would use it more often, yet we find time for pretty much everything else except pray. And when we pray, do we pray with watchfulness and alertness? Are we alert to the environment we're in, the state of our soul, the state of other people's souls? If we're Christ-centred, we're more on our toes. We know the privileges that are wonderful, being adopted children with access to our Heavenly Father, and that lifts burdens. And if we appreciate our salvation, we appreciate surely there are a host of good things that the Saviour has died to obtain for us. From the eternal security of our standing before God, we will pray, and we'll pray in such a way that it will qualify for what's called praying in the Spirit. So taking time to look. Next heading, and uh, this will be our last uh, heading this morning, no secrets allowed. Okay, no secrets allowed. Repeat, we need to pray with earnestness. We need to pray without reservation. There can be, in truth, no secret places in our soul. There can be no non-negotiables, which we have set beforehand, and some topic is strictly off limits in our relationship with the Lord. Psalm 19, verse 12, David asks, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. That's a serious prayer of David, built upon a consideration about himself. How can we understand at times the subtlety and irrationality of sin? How can we predict exactly and know for sure what we're carrying in the depths of our souls, what is therefore capable of expression at some future point? It takes us to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked, who can know it? There is the statement made, secret faults, biases, energies, evils lurk within, and we're barely aware of who we are and the kinds of things we're prone to be and to do. In fact, we're quite out of our depth with ourselves. How quickly indwelling sin can overthrow reason and shock us with the way we're capable of responding with moral collapse when faced with the right, or should we say, wrong temptation. We have no godless, we have no confidence in godless philosophies that try to reduce us to animals or impute to us some fundamental motivation such as our sexual urges. But there is some hidden stuff in the soul that needs naming and shaming. We mentioned some of those things. 
We notice too that the question of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that statement rather, crying out for understanding of the sinful human heart, has an answer supplied in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Well, given what we learn of the Lord's determination to search people's hearts, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, that heart of man that's deceitful and desperately wicked. I can do this, the Lord says, and reveal to those who seek it what they need to know, the wisdom to understand their deceitful hearts better. We read Psalm 139. Let's repeat verses 12 to 13. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is asking the Lord to do the very thing that the prophet Jeremiah, writing at a later stage, affirms that the Lord is going to perform. He will search out the hearts. He will test the minds. Or Psalm 51, the psalm where David is exposed in his wrongdoing in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. Here now is a man before his God, undone, unable to hide, confessing his iniquity. He utters words which we should utter if we want God to come and do a thorough work in us. Psalm 51, verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's not looking here for a quick fix. This is not a wash on the lowest setting with just one rinse and spin. He wants this to be a thorough wash and clear out. These are the kinds of invitations the Lord is actually looking for from us. No secrets are allowed, you see. We, like David, sometimes have to be brought very low before we fully realize the scale of the damage that sin has wrought in us. David had to look deep into the horror of his sinful heart and realize the enormity of the wickedness he committed before he was ready to make such a request of the Lord. But then he was ready to ask that the Lord would use his all-searching eye to root out and cleanse all the iniquity and sin attached to his sinful acts. This would touch the source of those evil desires, his own heart, those lusts, that self-serving, reputation-preserving selfishness that made him willing to kill a man rather than face exposure as an adulterer. There were some ugly things that lay behind those acts and David is now made ready that the investigation should take place and he will welcome the findings of that investigation, however painful those findings are. He stands ready to repent of all offences, attitudes and evil desires that are uncovered in the process. The Apostle Paul speaks of the searching and sifting work of the gospel as it anticipates what the Lord will do in revealing things on the day of judgment. Romans 2, verse 16, he says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. 
So it's for us to feel the weight of that day in advance and turn from our sin lest we be exposed on that day. Whatever secrets we have, the Lord will have full access to them. We do well to find out and confess those secrets now and invite scrutiny, comment and the transformative power of the Lord beforehand while there is yet time. Well, the next heading, which we will pick up when we come to it next week, is actually this. Do not attempt this on your own. Come to see the Lord's help, that welcoming face that is engaged with us in that heart search. Well, turning now to our hymn books, we sing our final hymn this morning, 690. Oh, for a heart to praise my God. <laughs> 